The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers 4DC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Echo Chamber PR show. This is Arun Sudharman for The Homes Report. As always, many thanks to Marketeers 4DC for helping us produce today's podcast. We're going to be joined by a couple of people on today's show. First up, we have Allison and Partners China MD David Wolf who's going to be talking about ethics and corruption in China's media industry. And after that, we'll be joined by my colleague, Arthi Shah, who is in conversation with Starbucks Chief Corporate Communications Officer, Corey DeBrower. Well, first of all, David, thank you so much for joining the Echo Chamber podcast. It's a pleasure to finally have you on. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we get to... The, uh, the topics we're going to discuss, which really is looking at some of the ethical issues that international PR firms are facing in China. I wondered if you could maybe just give our listeners just a, a basic idea of your experience, I guess, working in China's PR industry. So I've been working in China's PR industry, per se, since about 1998. Before that, I had actually been on, on the, the business side of business, but I came over to PR because it became clear quite early on that the way you're perceived in China directly determines your opportunities. And I found myself, even on the corporate side, spending more and more time doing PR. So I started out at a small British consultancy that focused on public affairs. Um, I went to, um, I worked at Burson Marsteller for five years mm-hmm. and uh, finished up as head of their Asia-Pacific tech practice. I was based in Beijing the whole time. Um, then I left BM ostensibly to take a year off. That lasted 72 hours. And uh, when the phone started to ring and I formed my own firm, Wolf Group Asia, which was focused very much on the strategic side of public relations. And uh, did that for seven and a half years until we were acquired by Allison and Partners uh, in January of 2013. Mm-hmm. And now I head up their uh, global China practice. And I'm dual based. I have one foot in the United States, spend about half of my time here working with clients at headquarters, and the other half of my time back in the old hometown of Beijing and, and uh, more and more in Shanghai. So that's mm. a bit about me. Okay. Um, so I think it's it's pretty clear that you, you probably know more about the um, the Chinese PR industry than most, particularly in terms of some of the issues that international PR firms are facing. Uh, one of those issues, of course, is um, a recurring one, and, and, it, and it concerns the ethics or otherwise of some of the agency practices in China. I suppose what we could call the, the ever-lingering threat of corruption um, this has come to light in, in fairly spectacular fashion over the last couple of months because of the issues that Edelman is facing in China. Uh, and I wondered if, uh, if you might actually be able to, to give our listeners a, you know, a very brief rundown in terms of what exactly has happened to Edelman in China. Because I think if you're not familiar with the way that China works, it's probably pretty confusing. Well, I'm not going to dive too much into detail, but I think as a good overview, what happened was um, several years ago, um, Edelman, in its in its efforts to expand in China, um, acquired uh, a share in a local PR firm that was part owned by a very prominent journalist at China Central Television, CCTV. 
And it was it was unclear, I think, at the time, and still unclear today, why they would acquire a PR firm locally, given that they were growing as quickly as they were, and why they would acquire one that was partly owned by a journalist who was so very prominent uh, in China and worked for an outlet that is essentially has the credibility of being the mouthpiece of the party and the mouthpiece of the government. And um, it, it seems to have crossed, you know, for, as far as we're concerned in, in, the, in the international PR world, that seems to have danced very close to uh, the ethical line between the, the, the division that should exist between journalists and public relations, that there should be no compensatory relationship between PR and journalists, and, and that started to mix things up a bit. Um, that was the primary issue, I think, as far as the, uh, the industry is concerned. They have, they have since been found out in that regard, and the government has detained their, their China head, who is, um, was uh, one of the other partners in the firm that was acquired. and. Um, the China head, I think, has been detained not just because he was involved in an ethical lapse um, with an international PR firm. He was detained because he is um, a small fish in an effort to catch a big fish in China's current um, anti-corruption efforts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, another indication that at the very least, uh, perhaps, um, Edelman didn't fully vet the people that it was it was seeking to work with. Uh, their their China CEO has been detained. He has not been formally charged. So you know we can't make any any call as, as to his culpability. But that that appears to be the situation as it stands. Is kind of in a quick nutshell. Mm. Um, what does this mean? Detained. You can be detained in China for a lot of reasons. You know, if you're a, a person of interest, they don't have obviously um, the same sorts of legal rights that we're used to in the English speaking world. Um, but it means that he is being more than likely held for questioning in a matter with which he has involvement. Mm -hmm. And so the government has given no direct acknowledgement that he's, he's been detained, nor has it said why and in what, what specific context he's being detained. But nonetheless, you know, when you're a global PR firm and your, your China CEO is uh, whisked away by police, that's never a good sign. And uh, it's certainly not something that clients want to see. And frankly, it's not even something that competitors want to see. Mm. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's bad for everyone. Okay, so, so in, a, in a nutshell, as you mentioned, um, the CEO of, we should, we should clarify, it's actually the, the holding group above Edelman, so the Daniel J. Edelman China holding group um, the CEO of that entity, Stephen Chow, is, is, has been detained for more than a month yes. now. What do you think the lessons here are for international PR firms? Well, I think this is a warning shot across the bow of international PR firms. And that is, if you conduct your business in a way that dances too close to the ethical fire, um, you, you are going to get burned. Um, and you will find yourself in trouble either with the authorities in China or with the industry um, and others outside of China, or perhaps both. And that China, despite behavior that suggests beliefs to the contrary, China is not some island that is removed from the world's morals and ethics. On the contrary, 
it is increasingly becoming a place where ethical behavior determines a foreign company's eligibility to continue operating peacefully in the PRC. And why is it that international PR firms find themselves in situations where they're not behaving ethically? Most PR firms have been sold on this idea uh, frequently by, by local executives, but it's not just the locals. It's, it's, um, it's a good number of expats who buy into the idea that China is an exception, that in order to succeed in China, you have to operate according to China's rules. And, and I don't mean by that laws, I mean just according to the accepted ways of doing business. Um, mm -hmm. I've had any number of particularly young Chinese PR people most of them under the age of 30 tell me, oh, well, you know, you absolutely have to act this way because this is the way it's done in China. Mm -hmm. And when you, try, when, you, when you protest and you say, no, we're not going to do it that way, the, the feedback is, well, you know, you're a foreigner, you just don't understand. Mm. And um, a lot of um, public relations firms at a very high executive level are prepared to buy that line of argument. Yeah, okay, China's a big country, it's you know, at 5,000 years of culture, they've been doing it this way, who am I to try to get in the way of, of you know, 5,000 years of culture? You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. So that's how uh, the firms get their opportunity to kind of operate in a fairly fast and loose manner. We've also gotten used to a series of tactics that rely on anything from, from questionable to nefarious practices. That's another issue altogether. We've gotten lazy with our tactics in China. We really have to update our approach. Yeah, if you're going to invite three, four, five hundred media to a press conference, mm -hmm. they're not going to show up unless you 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 know at least give them some some taxi money, and because they're they're they know that they're going to show up and get the same story as the other four hundred and ninety nine journalists for them. If you know they're going to be there. There's nothing really in it for them. Hmm. Um, we have to rethink that. Journalism in China is evolving. Um, practices in China are evolving. But we're, we're not catching up. And we're also at a point where the needs of our clients are evolving. So practices that may have been appropriate, arguably, at one time, are no longer necessary and arguably not appropriate at all now. And we have to, we have to face up to that and be ready to make those changes. What are some of the, um, the common practices that stray beyond the ethical boundaries in China? There, there's several. I, I gave one this idea mm. of paying journalists anywhere from um, the equivalent of, of 30 US dollars to, to 150 US dollars to come to a press conference or interview. Mm -hmm. the, there is this issue of public relations firms writing pro-client stories, which are essentially, you know, press releases in the style of a feature, um, and then handing them to reporters to go ahead and publish under their own bylines. PR firms sometimes price their services to clients on a per-published word basis, mm. and then um, after taking a cut, then pay the reporters to write reams of, of, of positive copy in returns for a, 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 a per word uh, fee, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm. and, and I, you know, entertaining reporters at expensive restaurants, um, paying them to write positive stories, paying them not to write negative stories, buying ads in newspapers to keep those publications from writing negative stories about them, and the reporter taking the commission on those those ad fees. 
Um, and then there's the black PR as and, well. And then there's black PR as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole issue of astroturfing, you know, mm. paying companies, paying people to go online and just, you know, smear online with, oh my gosh, I bought this product and I love it type, type uh, posts. Mm-hmm. It's 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 rife. I mean, you know, we could we could sit here and have a very long discussion, sort of detailing those. Those are the most most prominent practices that that, that we see. They are common, mm. and uh, I, I won't say that they are endemic, um, mm. but they are common enough to get awfully close to being endemic. So, so you you believe that international firms are complicit in these practices? I believe that international firms have convinced themselves that they have no choice. Hmm. Um, and they've been convinced by, by uh, anything from from staffers to journalists um, that this is the way things have to be, or or they're not going to, they're not going to be able to turn out the results that they're they, they've promised. So um, whether they're consciously complicit or not, I think a lot of international PR firms at the very highest levels are simply unaware um, and don't feel the need to make themselves aware of the, the, the practices in China. Is this a, Again, is this a don't know. ask, don't tell policy? I think there's, that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is, you know, China is a big, complicated place. And if you're sitting on top of a global agency from New York, you've got a lot of things on your mind. Mm. And you don't always have time to, to roll up your sleeves and say, hey, why is it that we're getting such great results for our clients in China? It's, it seems to be counterintuitive. Hey, it's not broken. It doesn't need fixing. Mm. You could argue that things have gone on so long this way that it's very easy to sort of lull yourself into that complacency. But I, uh, this is why I think the, the Edelman issue is so important. Mm. It, it really should be a wake-up call for all of us to, to dig into our China operations and say, what is it that we can be doing better and cleaner? How do we need to be changing the way we operate? in order to be operating a developed world uh, PR firm in China. Mm. Because it, presumably it's not just about doing things that are legal. I mean, you're, you're talking about a higher standard, I think, than just uh, do, I, doing what's, what's barely legal, what's the bare minimum in terms of legality. I, I don't think there are very many PR firms, mm. um, particularly the international PR firms, but you know, even the better local agencies, many of whom have uh, very smart people coming out of the international PR firms and starting their own their own agencies. I don't think that any of these companies are interested in doing uh, in being outright illegal in, mm. in conducting practices that are going to get themselves in trouble with the law. There are firms who do it, but I would say that the vast majority of PR of PR agencies and PR practitioners don't want to cross the law. Mm-hmm. But the difference in China between what's legal. And what's ethical is vast. Mm. Um, it, it leaves an immense area open for practices that are questionable. Um, and you know, here's here's the key thing, Arun: practices that, if we're exposed, don't simply endanger the clients. Don't simply endanger the agencies. They endanger the clients. Mm. As agencies and as PR professionals inside of firms, our first and most important calling is to protect the firms that we assist. Mm. And by allowing them to engage in these, we're, at, we're setting off a, a ticking time bomb, or we're setting a ticking time bomb inside of these companies that can be used against them at some time in, at a later date for whatever reason. Mm. How complicit are the clients themselves 
in some of these practices? We have a very young industry mm. in China, and it is not uncommon to go into the PR departments of a major Fortune 500 global firm and to find someone who is in his mid-30s or her mid-30s who spent 10 to 12 years in an agency and then came across and has been in, on, on the client side for three years and has never been exposed to anything but this kind of environment. So they believe this is not only normal, that this is the right way to do things because they know of no other way. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's complicity, that complicity starts in the PR department. Mm. And you know nobody higher in the organization is digging into their PR departments or probably even their HR departments for that matter and saying, ooh, are we ethically compliant? You know, mm. ethics is an issue that, that, you know, corporate ethics is an issue that goes far beyond PR in China. Let's just be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we're not, you know, falling on our swords here saying, oh, you know, we're, we're the ones that, that are making the mistakes. Everybody else is clean. They're not. That's no excuse for us, however, um, as guardians of, of corporate reputation, especially, to, to continue these sorts of practices. We have to get clean before everybody else does. Mm -hmm. What about this idea that, and you, you touched upon it already, but I often hear it as a justification um, that this is just the way things are done in China and actually we need to apply a kind of moral relativism here uh, and we shouldn't really be aspiring to the same standards that we have we might have in place in 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 more so-called developed markets we get that a lot you know when, when when you push the first time you hear oh well this is the way things are done in China when you push a little harder what you hear is this this idea that hey listen we have a culture that is every bit as legitimate as yours. Mm. This is the way things are done here. And how dare you come and impose your values on us? And, you know, we in the West particularly are very sensitive to this idea of cultural imperialism, you know, mm -hmm. enforcing our beliefs on others. Oh, you know, we've been raised, those of us who've been raised, you know, in, in the U.S. and in Western Europe, with this concept of multiculturalism and legitimacy of, of, of cultures outside of your own, um, and who have grown up with the collective guilt of colonialism on our shoulders, we're very sensitive about these kinds of things. And so we're, we're, we're very quick to back away when this issue is brought up. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that that's horribly, horribly wrong. Mm. I think it's, it's been proven as such. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know, anybody who carries with them a moral compass understands that there are some universal rights and wrongs. Mm. I think we as an industry um, have recognized for a long time that there are some universal rights and wrongs. And I think it is certainly high past time, particularly given the way China has developed, for us to say, all right, um, it's time for us to bring our values to China and to do two things. One, to reform our own industry. But two, to be a positive force in the growth of a healthy, independent media in the mm. People's Republic of China. Absolutely. Because that's the other part of this, mm. is that the media, everything from, from the largest newspapers down to the smallest websites, aren't paying their people adequately. And that's a lot of what drives the hand, you know, the hand sticking out and saying, you know, okay, you know, you want me to cover, you pay me. Mm -hmm. They don't provide them with expense accounts. And they tell them, hey, if you want to increase your salary, go out there and sell some advertising in these companies that you're covering. Um, 
Right. We are not only complicit in practices that are bad for the industry and bad for our clients, we are complicit in practices that are putting a barrier for China between where they are today and having the kind of independent media that can bring about positive social change in that country. Right. So really, it's it's, it's perpetuating this, the, the, you know, a, a cycle almost. It truly. Mm. And, and we're, we're complicit in that. And we shouldn't be. You know, there is a movement in China of um, particularly under 35 journalists and a group of publications like Caijing and Caixing and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, 21st Century Economic News, um, Southern Weekly, mm -hmm. that are really interested in supporting genuine um, investigative journalism, quite similar mm -hmm. to what we're used to in the West. Mm -hmm. A truly, you know, they're not, they don't have a truly independent media in China, mm -hmm. but we're getting there in steps. Mm -hmm. We can either be a part of that and helping out or we can slow the process by, by digging our heels in and saying, no, this is the way things are done in China, and this is the way they always will be. Mm. And unfortunately, right now, we're taking the latter course. So what do you think needs to happen? I mean, the, you know, a few years ago, we had uh, the, the Shanghai Declaration. A group of international PR firms got together and signed up to a set of standards, and they said all the right things. They, you know, there's no actual enforcement, I think. There's no penalties of these particular standards. What do you, is this enough, or what else do you think needs to be done? No, I think it was a good first step, but unless we go further as, as firms and as industries, as, as an industry and as individuals, um, it's going to be dismissed as nothing more than a deft PR stunt from the wizards of PR. Hmm. Um, the declaration was excellent. I think now we have to move towards more concrete proposals and more concrete action. Um, if, if I were making a call, I would say that what we need now is a Shanghai Manifesto. Uh -huh. And to say, you know, several years ago, we got together and said, this is, you know, we pledge to behave ethically. Now, here are the 95 things, you know, or the 10 or the 15 or however many things that we are specifically going to do in our operations, both with ourselves and with our clients, to change the way things are being done and to improve our industry, mm -hmm. to improve China, and to improve um, the, the craft of, of media and journalism in China. And I think we need to be very specific. This is, this is what each of us, the undersigned, refuse to do. Mm. This is our pledge. And that's it's a very easy next step. The question is, is are, you, are you going to get people to sign up for the idea that, no, we are, we are not going to do this anymore? So I think I, it's going to be difficult to get there. I think at the same time, what we have to do is we have to sit down and say, what are the practices and behaviors that we have inside of our companies that are leading to these issues? Mm -hmm. And what are the alternatives that we should be pursuing as an industry? Let's all get together and say, hey, guys, we don't need to be doing cattle call press conferences anymore. In fact, we shouldn't. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's all agree right now that we're going to stop giving the you know the the taxi fees. Mm -hmm. Okay, and right. let's let's all agree right now that even though this is going to cost us and it's going to hurt us, okay, we aren't going to be paying for these things anymore. What we're instead going to do is change our approach to the way that we pitch stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's going to be a tough one. Mm -hmm. But I think I think it, it it means that all the brains in the industry have to get together and say. 
what are the alternative approaches? And I also think we have to bring um, editors and publishers into this into this question as well. Mm. I don't think that this discussion should be the PR industry by itself. Mm-hmm. I think we should sit down with editors and publishers and say, look, we want to help you build a stronger reputation with your readers because we know you're under siege. Mm-hmm. We, can, we have seen your future, China media, and it's not pretty unless you have considerable credibility. Otherwise, you're about to be disintermediated by a whole bunch of online media that are going to eat your lunch. So right. you, for your future, you really have a choice. You can either sign up with us and do this and make your media independent, your, your journalists independent from outside influences from us and our clients. Or, you know, we don't have to have this conversation and we can, we can work with journalists from, from other publications who do. Mm. You know, we have to recognize that we can, we as PR people can be of great value to journalists in China, far outside of the money question. We have information, we have insights, we have ideas, we have story ideas, we have a whole range of opportunities Mm-hmm. to do the right thing in China and to do well by doing it. Mm-hmm. And we simply have to get down and do that. And if we can't do it as an industry, then we have to do it as individuals and as agencies. The level of reform required of the PR industry in China, I mean, are we talking about incremental reform here, or do you believe it's, it's got to be more radical than that? That's, I mean, that's a great question. You know, we, when, at the beginning of this podcast, we listed. I'd started listing out a bunch of practices that um, ran from the questionable to the nefarious. Mm. I think what we have to do is take a triage approach, mm-hmm. and by that I mean, what are the practices that we could very easily abandon now? And let's just start with the easy stuff and, and, and throw that out first, mm-hmm. and then let's gradually tackle the harder stuff over the time. I think, frankly, the most difficult challenge was the first one that I mentioned, which is these taxi fees. Mm. Because that's going to require a fundamental change in behavior of the industry and a fundamental change in the way that journalists are compensated in China. This is going to be a long-term, stickier question. Mm-hmm. So we have to recognize that that's going to, that, that'll, that'll be the most difficult one to take. But let's start from that list and say, what are the ones that we can stop now? Okay, What is the right response when a reporter says, hey, either you pay me or I'm going to write a horribly negative story about your company. Mm. What is the right approach to that? And to also to reach out to the government, to the Public Security Bureau, and say, if we are approached by a reporter with this proposal of blackmail, who should we call? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and recognize that the authorities, and you know, there's a particularly recent development, the authorities are taking interest in this kind of behavior. Right. And, yeah. and are starting to make it clear that they're not they're not interested in, in, in uh, blackmail being part of Chinese journalism. Mm. So um, I think we can start eliminating these behaviors one by one, but we have to approach them not as a grand ethics problem. I think we need to recognize that each of them has their own root causes and each of them has the solutions that are going to be interlocking but separate. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today and your insight. Um, I'll be seeing you soon, I think, in Beijing. Yeah. See you in Beijing. Indeed, our Innovation Summit on the 18th of September. Um, have a great weekend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Arun. You have a great one, too. 
Next up, we'll be joined by Arthi Shah, who is talking to Starbucks Communications Chief Corey DeBrower. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, and I'm here with Corey DeBrower, Head of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Starbucks. Um, as most of you probably heard, in June, Starbucks announced a partnership with Arizona State University to pay for some portion of college tuition for their employees. The announcement enjoyed amazing momentum, especially here in the U.S., um, which I'm sure Corey can talk about in just in just a moment. Um, but those results included a rare appearance by a corporate CEO on uh, Comedy Central's Daily Show, with, of course, uh, the Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz, having a, a sit-down with the show's host, John, John Stewart. Well, firstly, Corey, thank you for being here today. Arthi, thanks for having me. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah, so, Corey, can you maybe take us back to, to the beginning and to the planning of this announcement with Arizona State? I mean, did you anticipate that people would have such a strong reaction, um, both positive and, in some cases, um, some, some negative backlash uh, to the announcement? Well, I think the, the thing that we were hoping for was a strong reaction from our partner base. That's the word that we use at Starbucks to describe our employees. Um, and so to take you back in the planning process, you know, what we were thinking was we have more than 135,000 partners here in the U.S., and of them, 75% have not completed their bachelor's degree. Either they've started and didn't finish, they wish to attend, but for whatever reason haven't. And so we knew that there was a significant opportunity to create, um, you know, sort of a defining benefit in the spirit of the benefits that we had created back when we first took the company public in the 90s. We were among the first companies to offer affordable health care, even to part-time employees. And we're also among the first companies to offer uh, equity in the form of stock, either wholly owned shares or stock options. And so before there was an Affordable Care Act and before the Silicon Valley kind of made stock, you know, a regular part of the uh, fully loaded compensation program for an employee, Starbucks within the service sector had created these really defining things. And we knew, based on what our – we have an annual survey that we take, and we knew that our partners had told us that – uh, completing their uh, college education, completing their dreams of uh, what a um, higher ed degree could do for their careers, whether it was Starbucks or elsewhere, was, was really an important thing to them. And so, to be honest, the audience we cared about the most and continue to care about the most uh, was our partners, and really only secondarily was our goal to think about how we would, uh, how this would land or, or how people would receive it outside of Starbucks. But because Arizona State is obviously a public institution. Uh, we were very careful in thinking about how um, our plan would roll out and the ways by which Arizona State would benefit as much from this announcement as Starbucks would. And so, you know, obviously we were extraordinarily pleased with the results. I mean, if I can kind of skip ahead, I mean, aside from the fact that the announcement by far is the biggest thing that Starbucks had ever been a part of. By the end of the week, so we announced this uh, early uh, one week in June, by the end of that week, we had generated more than 2 billion earned media impressions uh, around the world, which is a pretty extraordinary number. There's a lot of zeros in that number. And so obviously that meant that in some ways it transcended a, a company announcement and became part of the zeitgeist, uh, part of the discussion uh, in a number of different uh, venues that week. And uh, we were very pleased because obviously the audience we cared the most about, our partners, immediately took us up on that. And so here we are in late July, early August, thinking about, you know, sort of what the next step is. And by the end of August, um, we'll have completed the admissions process for the um, fall quarter at 
Arizona State. And what we've seen so far is that literally many, many partners have been admitted to the program. Hundreds are still in the middle of that admissions process. And maybe most gratifyingly, thousands uh, more uh, prospective candidates have applied for jobs at Starbucks to take advantage of this benefit than would have otherwise been the case. Mm -hmm. So I think in really every dimension, uh, we feel extraordinarily happy with the way things went. I know from talking with our counterparts at Arizona State that they, they have a similar feeling about the impact that it created. Mm-hmm. Well, going back then to, to the results, and as I mentioned early on, that um, you know, you, you, your, your CEO, Howard Schultz, was, was, on, was on The Daily Show, and, and um, you and I have spoken about this before, that there, there are not very many um, PR prof- professionals who would be, feel comfortable putting their CEO on on a show like like the Daily Show that's you know known for its its biting satire and, and can take a pretty pretty cynical view towards um towards corporate initiatives, but on that particular episode, I believe John Stewart said to Howard Schultz that you know it's his job to hate everything, um, but he had a hard time hating this. So tell me a little bit about what it was like to put a CEO on on a on a show like the Daily Show. Again, to kind of step back from it, you know, our objective in having uh, Howard be on the program. Uh, was really twofold. The first is is that obviously this is a program that is aimed at our, you know either our current partner base or prospective partners down the road. And the average age of those partners in the United States is about 25, maybe 26 years of age. So uh, it's a young audience. And you know, one of the things in thinking about how we uh, were to carry these uh, this program and these messages forward into the media is thinking about how do we ensure that we hit the right audience and that we're as relevant as possible. And it goes without saying that uh, John's program uh, is right in the sweet spot of that audience. Um, it, it has a young audience. It's a young, engaged audience. They're, they're very smart. John's an extraordinarily quick uh, host for that program. And um, so, you know, to your point, I think our, our belief was is that there was enough um, substance and enough in the way of, you know, sort of high-order objectives for our people uh, to warrant the risk of, of uh, you know, having Howard uh, be on the program. And John treated us very well. I mean, as you said, uh, John pointed out during the program that it's his job to hate everything, and he found very little uh, not to like about the program, which was nice to hear. But maybe more importantly, the, the feedback that we had from our partners after the program, again, I mean, you know, one of the things that we think about at Starbucks with anything that we engage in is the degree to which what we're doing will make our people proud. And I think more than anything, what we heard resonate, you know, that evening and the days that followed was not only were our people proud of the program and that we were offering it and they were excited to learn more about it and and to participate, but they were also proud to see Howard and Starbucks represented with somebody that they consider to be uh, a cultural icon for their generation, which, you know, John Stewart no doubt is. So uh, to us, the, the upside far outweighed the risks and, you know, you can go back and look at the clip, but I, I think uh, Howard and John had a great discussion. Uh, people learned a lot that they might not otherwise about the program, and, uh, and you know, so it went. Mm-hmm. So, so what about, um, I mean, there, there was some backlash to the announcement and some confusion about how the tuition reimbursement program would work. And, um, and you know, and, and going back, talking about the audiences that I'm sure that, you know, you, you cared about the most, like you said, were were. were, were Starbucks partners, as well as I'm sure I'm sure shareholders as well, since Starbucks, of course, is a publicly traded company. Um, some of the criticism was was that the media sort of overplayed the scope of the program. 
I think one of think the U.S. News and World Report um, headline was Starbucks to pay for employees' online degrees, um, which I, I, there was some criticism that that was that was overplayed a little bit. Um, how did you how did you respond to that? And then what did you do from a communications perspective to help educate and sort of clarify the program to to especially these two audiences that I'm sure you cared about? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I think um, you know the the Starbucks College Achievement Plan when we first conceived of it with Arizona State was uh, ostensibly established as the most significant uh, significant investment that we have made in our people since we offered Beanstalk in 1992 and healthcare prior to that. And so, um, you know, the challenge for us was to, you know, we as a public company uh, and Arizona State as a public institution in some ways have very similar um, demands uh, from a variety of stakeholders in terms of the transparency with which we operate. And yet the fact is is that Arizona State is obviously a public institution. We are a public company, and so they operate in somewhat different ways. And so I think you know, the feedback to your point that we heard very early on was just some confusion uh, around the way that the program was set up. And you know, the, the structure of the program was jointly developed between Arizona State and Starbucks as a way to incentivize graduation without introducing additional financial barriers to, to access. I think if you listen to anything that ASU's president, Dr. Michael Crow, has talked about during the 10 plus years that he's been president, he is fixated on the notion of creating a new American university in which both quality and quantity can live together. Uh, it is the nation's largest uh, university in terms of attendance, but it also has an extraordinary track record of success, um, including the kind of, the, the number of Fulbright scholars that would probably stagger most people if they learned of it, uh, you know, compared to other state institutions uh, like it. Arizona State's numbers actually compare with Ivy League schools compared uh, to other state institutions. So very quickly, I think we, we heard from the media that there was some confusion about the way that the program was set up. And I think, uh, you know, in subsequent interviews, I think certainly from, like, let's say day two through day four, uh, our objective was to make sure that, you know, our and Arizona State's aims in establishing graduation uh, and completion of degree is really being paramount to the program's success uh, and that our financial structure had been set up in a way to guarantee or ensure that completion of an existing course of study, in other words, junior and senior year, would be incentivized at a different rate than the first couple of years and to explain in detail what that was became key uh, to making sure that people understood what the value of the program was. And there were a couple of specific interviews uh, that we asked uh, Howard and Dr. Crow to engage in, um, including with um, vertical publications that are in the higher ed space uh, and have an extraordinary amount of credibility both with uh, academicians as well as existing college students and even prospective college students uh, were very important in helping to clarify that. And so what what would be the next step? And you, you, you kind of touched on this at the beginning of the interview, but I'm curious, you know, what role do you see communications playing moving forward? I mean, obviously there was a, a, a concentration, a, a massive concentration of, of coverage and education around the program in June with the announcement, but, but what role do you see communications playing in sort of sustaining that momentum and keeping that top of mind, especially as some of these prospective um, employees are considering jobs or considering their, their college options? That's a great point, Arthur. I think uh, communications in some ways was a, a driver of 
you know, the initial announcement, even some of the uh, planning of the way that the program would be established prior to its announcement. And because uh, of the way the program is structured, uh, we see communications as being, you know, sort of inextricably linked to the ultimate success of the program. And so the beauty of um, higher education is that it operates within, you know, an academic calendar year. And so there are any number of milestones within a given academic year that present themselves as great opportunities for storytelling. So I think, you know, first and foremost, Arthi, what we see our role as uh, inside the company and for external audiences being sort of the, the you know, chief storytellers, if you will, of brand initiatives and our motivations as a company and to make sure that those are understood. And so as we look out over the course of the rest of the year, we see, uh, you know, an initial group of Starbucks partners who will be enrolling at Arizona State as students. We see sort of the normal things that happen during the academic year. There will be, you know, holiday breaks, spring breaks, uh, finals weeks, all the things that, you know, are intrinsically a part of student life. And then ultimately there will be graduation. And so, you know, we, we look at literally in partnership with Arizona State, what are the key milestones throughout the year? Um, starting in August and the first class, if you will, of students who've been admitted to Arizona State uh, through its partnership with Starbucks, will uh, be made known. And so I think from that point forward, we'll start to pick out these milestones and tell stories both of, you know, what these students' experience is like, uh, what are they gaining through uh, Starbucks association with Arizona State, what are they learning. Um, and, you know, all this ultimately translates to stories about people. You know, our success as a company depends on our partners. Um, and, you know, all that they contribute to the company. And I think that, you know, individually there are amazing stories of first-time college uh, students, uh, you know, the first in their family to attend college. They'd be the first in their family to graduate from college. And I think those stories will form the backbone of this narrative of the partnership between Starbucks and Arizona State. So I can't wait for, you know, May when uh, graduation will happen down in Tempe in the very first class of Starbucks Scholars to graduate from Arizona State will, will occur, and that will present so many opportunities to tell stories about their lives and the impact that it made, but also serve as an inspiration for other partners and, and frankly, applicants uh, to apply for, for jobs at Starbucks and be able to take advantage of this benefit. So, uh, you know, as, as we see it, those are all things that live both externally in the world where anybody can learn about them, but maybe more importantly, internally within the four walls within the, the Starbucks family and uh, will we'll form a you know, bonding agent, if you will, between our people to be able to talk about this benefit, what it means to them, and encourage others to try it. Corey, one more question just to wrap up. Um, you know, one of the quotes that I think that Howard Schultz is known for is, is saying that, you know, the only way to build a, a great enduring company is by linking shareholder value to the value uh, for employees. And, and you know, you've, you've alluded to, to sort of the health care benefits that, that, that Starbucks has provided as well as, as sort of the equity um, arrangements as well. So I'm, I'm curious sort of how you feel like this, this announcement sort of fit in with that overall narrative um, about linking shareholder value to, to, to value for employees. Um, and, and how does that impact communications? I mean, how does that sort of that, that, that ethos around, around, um, around bringing shareholder value and, and employee value together, um, how does that impact communications on, on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think what it does is it, it places everything through the filter that to us is the most important, which is, you know, and, and Howard has said this, so many times since uh, I've been working with them in the five years I've been at Starbucks, 
confidence in our people that they are in turn able to care for our customer in the right way. And so I think we believe, and we actually have data uh, that suggests that this is true, that the most important factor to our customer in terms of brand health and the way that they think about Starbucks and their engagement with the brand and their willingness to purchase again and, you know, tell friends about us is the degree to which our customer believes that the company is taking care of its frontline people, pure and simple. And so, you know, whether that is our, you know, education program with Arizona State, whether that is our program to hire 10,000 veterans and military spouses over the next five years, whether that is, you know, any of the uh, sort of seasonal initiatives that we're running actually in our stores at any given point in time, it's always through this filter of how are we investing in our people, how are we making the the Starbucks experience come to life for them in, in a way that will make them proud and in a way that makes them feel like they're cared for, and then how does that enable our people to, to take care of our customers? And, you know, there are uh, there are other brands that do this. Starbucks certainly isn't the, the first to have thought of it or the only brand to act that way, but I do think that it makes us somewhat unique and that 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 becomes our focus. And interestingly, is back to your point about what does it mean for communications, often what that means is, is that we are thinking about uh, the messages that, uh, and the stories that we'll carry forward within the family to our people as being something that's instantly transferable or translatable to the outside world. So if you look, Arthi, at our uh, social media platforms, for example, for our people, there's an at Starbucks Partners Twitter account, there's a Starbucks Partners Facebook account, there is a Starbucks Partners Instagram account, we're working on a Tumblr uh, right now. What we're thinking about always are messages that don't have to be tweaked or reworked in some way to go from a discussion that we're having partner to partner to one that will have to live, uh, you know, sort of in the wild, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that makes my job a lot easier, but it also makes it a lot more rewarding because it is one of the few places that I've ever experienced or, or worked or counseled where we're thinking of an internal dialogue as being something that would be shared with, you know, everybody else. Mm -hmm. I think that makes Starbucks somewhat unique, and I think it makes our approach different. Mm -hmm. Indeed, message consistency across audiences. Well, Corey, I appreciate your your being here, and uh, this is this is really interesting stuff. And, and congratulations on a, on on, a, on an announcement. Very very well done. Well, Arthi, thank you. And uh, again, you know, I think it's still such uh, these are early days, you know, and I I feel really gratified with what we were able to accomplish through the announcement. But I'll tell you, I'll feel a lot more gratified if at the end of the academic year we literally have hundreds of Starbucks partners who are walking across the stage and sort of moving the tassel from one side of the mortar board to the next. Uh, as graduates of Arizona State, and I can't wait for that moment to happen. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you, Corey. Thank you all for listening to today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. And thank you, of course, to Marketeers 4DC for helping us produce today's podcast. 